Congratulations, everybody. Uh, welcome to Coffee House. We we did it. You did it. We got there. We got through it. We finished after a long, long road Vanity Fair by William Makepeace Thackeray. This was not necessarily the fault of the book, as you will find out as we go along. But it took a while. It took some time to get through this. We were stuck on 74 for a great deal of time in the 100 greatest books of all time. But Vanity Fair, it typifies the Victorian novel. And as we've talked about before, I am not too fond of Victorian era novels. This one was published 1847 to 1848. It was published in a series of 20 entries. It was like a TV show where you just you were getting more and they'd have cliffhangers at the ends of various chapters. Of course, the Victorian era, it was during Queen Victoria's reign. This was from 1837, I want to say. Yeah, 1837 to 1901. But the novel itself is actually set earlier. It's set in 1814. And it's in the midst of the Napoleonic Wars, the end, the tail end of the Napoleonic Wars. So this was primarily his initial defeat, his exile on Elba, his escape and return to the fray, and then his exile on St. Helena. But these things will weave themselves into the plot of Vanity Fair. It was written in English, and the title is actually from Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan, right? Which has the most gorgeous book, leather-bound book, in the Franklin Library collection. It's absolutely beautiful. But so what happens in Pilgrim's Progress was that they stop at this fair in a town called Vanity. And it was supposed to represent all the attachment to the worldly things, the sinful things. And the subtitle is often given as a novel without a hero, so that should give you an idea. It's really a satire of human excesses. It's not really celebrating the wealth and decadence. It's showing the decay in character that comes from the wealth and decadence. But it doesn't have as straightforward a moral as one might think. <laughs> we'll get into it. So, of course, we we haven't been in one of these works of literature in a while, so I can't even remember the process here. But we're going to go through kind of the plot and characters. We're going to do some quotes so you understand the writing style, see if it's for you. And then we're going to do some analysis about the book itself. <laughs> So to start out with, in the plot and characters, it has a narrator, and it's not a disinterested narrator. You actually learn that the narrator treats this as much like, I guess, the author would, is that these are puppets that are being used to show something to the children, <laughs> telling a story. And that was kind of a motif that I forgot about as we were going along through it, which is good. And the narrator addresses the reader directly from time to time. There's a narration that's more weaved into the story than other kinds of more stilted narration structures. So what's it about? Okay, uh, like I said, it's, it's a lot of pages. It's got like 20 parts in succession over a full year as it was published. It's, it's a long book. It's got a lot going on. But to give you some idea of it, we've got a couple of characters who are counterweights to each other. So you've got Becky, Rebecca, and Amelia, Emma, and they have these distinctive characteristics. So Becky, she was penniless, and she's kind of more wily and capable. She's more worldly, and she's attractive to men. Men really like her, and she loves society and all the trappings of society. And Amelia is part of high society, but she's kind of dull and naive. She's less attractive. And she dislikes the vagaries of high society. And so what the book does is it follows them both through their life and love and family and friends. And as it is a Victorian novel, you get all the intrigue of marriages and gossip and seductions and scandals and fortunes lost. But all of this in this book is with the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars and their impact on the people. 
Like I said, so much happens, it'd be impossible to recount or remember most of it, but we'll go through some of it just so you have an idea of how this thing functions. And there are going to be spoilers here, so if you want to read the actual narrative and experience it at once, you know, and see how it unfolds, then you can stop here and come back. But otherwise, we are going to press ahead. So Becky, she has a habit. <laughs> she has a modus operandi of seducing various men, especially powerful men. And there was, uh, like, there was uh, one particular event where she's married at this time, and this older man is is trying to talk to her and, and get her to marry him and come live with him and raise the kid and all this stuff. And then she has this kind of coy response where she's, oh, well, I, I have to tell you that I'm married. And, and so they go th through this back and forth on that. And for some reason, this particular sequence stuck out to me when it comes to the images that were created related to it, but something stuck out to me about it and something that grew on me over time was that the characters do seem to have kind of distinctive qualities that are easy to understand which is not an easy thing to do as a writer is to create characters that are defined these ways and I don't know that they necessarily could function like you take them out of here and you put them in some other circumstance that you would know how they would act but there was something that kind of stood out you know okay so part of Becky's story is that she marries this guy and named Rodden and his parents aren't happy about this so he gets disinherited because she's like lowborn so he's not supposed to do this but what Becky does she manipulates people she manipulates men and she will collect money from her dalliances and just hoard it in this one area so she has this kind of shady underbelly that that she covers up, but she's pretty and fun to be around, so she gets a lot of men interested in her. And eventually, uh, this is just not going to do it. There's so much stuff happens, so I'm just going to go through most of it here. And, <laughs> and like all the kind of peak points, and then, like I said, you can read it if you want to. But Rodden eventually finds out who Becky really is because he finds all this money that she has collected. And he leaves. And they have a son at this point, and uh, so he just abandons abandons the son the son ends up getting raised by family and then he dies in the far off area of yellow fever but one thing you'll see is that none of the characters there's no like pristine wonderful moral character there's no just completely depraved character there's a lot of balance within all the characters because it could have been played as this guy is just a victim of her manipulations and so he's he suffers but he's eventually vindicated but he just goes off and dies and he abandoned his son so that's not great so Becky ends up wandering and, and she finds herself among the con artists and card sharps and these types of people and gambling people and she's mingling amongst this crowd at a certain point after all this stuff has happened. So just to jump back to the beginning because there's Amelia on the other side. So Amelia is going through this stuff too but she gets manipulated by Becky. You know she's more naive and she gets manipulated and Becky flirts with her husband Amelia eventually marries George, but what had happened before this is Napoleon escapes Elba, and this causes Amelia's father to lose all of his money because he made some bad speculations. And so George is forbidden from marrying Amelia because she's now broke. I mean, it's kind of a dick move, but still, that's that's what happens. But he marries her anyway, but then quickly gets bored of her. <laughs> and so he starts flirting with Becky, and Becky's trying to manipulate him to try to, you know, she wants anybody who has money, but then he goes and squanders his money. Money. And Amelia gets pregnant with his child, and little George is born. That's not his rap name. It's little. He's just little, physically little. And then he ends up dying at Waterloo. I mean, all the men, <laughs> all the men, just end up losing all their money and dying in various ways.
But so after this, Amelia is like traveling with this guy Dobbins and, you know, all these people have different roles within the community and the culture and and these social relationships are obviously important for this kind of novel. I mean, the Victorian era, era probably has an interest in placing more importance on those social relationships. So that would have had more meat to it when you're reading this, you know, in the late 19th century, when you're trying to take this in and you're seeing how, ooh, the, the shady rich people, how they were. But all these social relationships would have more significance at the time and how those things how those things work. Anyway, so Amelia is traveling with Dobbins and some other people as Joss guy and, and some others. And they that's where they run into Becky again, who's with all these gambling people, these lowlifes. And then Becky does some more manipulating and ends up hanging out with this crew again and convinces Amelia that Dobbins is a bad guy. And Dobbins says that your old husband wasn't great. And he takes off and... <laughs> And then eventually, so Amelia's arc is to come to the realization that George wasn't perfect and that he w- he did some not so savory things because she like canonized him and thought he was perfect. But she eventually accepts that uh, Dobbins is a good guy for her and she kind of rejects Becky and moves on from there. But Becky, you know, being the, the manipulative, wily little hussy that she is, she ends up getting with Joss, who's one of the crew, and then he dies under suspect circumstances, at least implied that she had something to do with it. As it turns out, that they'd just taken out a life insurance policy that would benefit Becky. She gets the, the life insurance and then returns to England and lives out her days just fine after this. And then one of the subplots is little George. He ends up getting raised because Amelia leaves him and he ends up getting raised by like his grandparents. And the implication again is that things work out for him. Like he gets acculturated <laughs> out of all these these bad societal norms and inclinations and disinclinations. He kind of makes it out of there. So you've got all this and obviously there's so much that happens in between. It's just a lot of stuff. But that's, that's the main gist of the things. You've got Becky who's seducing men and taking money and this kind of cancerous thing that's going through high society but ends up doing just fine and Amelia who has a kind of a positive arc who ends up with Dobbins but still leaves her child behind and the child turns out okay but anyway so you've got a lot of stuff going on all the while Napoleon is is going to Elba and breaking out and ending up back on St. Helena So, ah, wow, we are just going to run into some quotes here. Quote, The world is a looking glass and gives back to every man the reflection of his own face. Frown at it and it will in turn look sourly upon you. Laugh at it and with it and it is a jolly kind companion. And so let all young persons take their choice. End quote. There are some mixed-in profundities, and there's something just more to the way that all of this kind of thing is structured. You know, obviously there was a kind of satire, and the author seems to be interested in doing some kind of moral alchemy to his contemporaries and get them to think about these things, but it's not heavy-handed. Quote, in the midst of friends, home, and kind parents, she was alone, end quote. So there's a little bit of that kind of American beauty emptiness to high society thing going on here. But it's not as kind of overwrought and plain and underwhelming on repeat repeat viewings. I think there's a little bit more to it in this context. Quote, the wicked are wicked, no doubt, and they go astray and they fall and they come by their deserts. But who can tell the mischief which the very virtuous do? End quote. So it's bringing down a few pegs the people who are pretending to be highly virtuous. But again, I don't think it's quite so plain as that. It's quite so plain as, oh, there are rich people and rich people do bad things too. I don't think it's quite that plain. 
Quote, some cynical Frenchman has said that there are two parties to a love transaction, the one who loves and the other who condescends to be so treated. End quote. I thought this was kind of the most uh, profound quote that I saw. That I, I've been in those relationships and that makes a perfect sense of a lot of the ways that relationships work. So I kind of love that. And I really think, I mean, this he considers this his greatest work, and a lot of people, you know, put this on list. This is number 74 on our list, and our list, of course, was an amalgamation of 40 different lists of the best works of literature. So it's got to be the definitive list, right? Uh, but number 74 was, was Vanity Fair. And like I said, there are some little pockets of profundity that I felt like I ran into. And there's something about the grander arc and idea of the entire book. You know, I love the the title coming from Pilgrim's Progress. You know, there's some kind of asceticism built into that. And the Puritanism, you know, that comes from that idea. And it's just a fair where it's just about vanity, just vain and all that. And then you have all these characters who are really balanced characters just going through life. And there's some kind of a criticism, but also kind of a, a gentle sweet handling of the characters as well anyway to go to the analysis as one reviewer described it there's no reformism it's not that we need some social movement to change what's here or that we need some political movement to fix society that's that's not what the author is getting at there's something deeper about the way that humans function that's just kind of being presented here. It's like, okay, we'll take it for what you will, but this is where we are. It did feel, uh, it was meandering. I mean, obviously it was in 20 parts. It's a long book, so it felt fatted in some areas where don't know how much you need to retread these different character traits when it comes to a, a plot or character basis. You don't know how many times you need to send this person in this way to show that this is their character or what you're really accomplishing doing it again. And a lot of, I mean, there was a lot. I definitely tuned out occasionally where I was just like, would read a whole chunk and not know, not remember a single thing about what I just read. <laughs> there are some images and some ideas and some things that happened that definitely stick out to me. You know, George dying at Waterloo and the little kid showing up and Koi Becky who's really kind of in control but just going from man to man and manipulating them and this kind of dance that people do when they're courting <laughs> and there were a number of things that stood out but so much of the chubbiness of the book just kind of fell away and I can't remember it and like there are books that to this day I read them one time and there are just images that just pulsate and I can't get rid of but this book, just so much of it, it just kind of disappeared. But like I said, characters are clearly balanced. I mean, I can't fault it for that. It, it They all have legitimate flaws, not fake flaws. They have legitimate flaws. The major characters are often distasteful. That's a daring thing to do, to have distasteful central characters. You have the balanced duo, which kind of works, where you have Becky and Amelia, who are kind of of a pair, but also hate each other in some ways, and screw each other over, but still want to stick around with each other. I mean, there's there's a lot there. And there are some good character turns. It does stand out to me that Amelia is so resistant, you know, to find any fault in George and that she gets to have that arc at the end. There's just, uh, there was something that stuck out to me about that. A lot of times it kind of, it felt like Downton Abbey. And <laughs> I, I haven't seen all of that show. I, I watched a few seasons. I remember there's a girl in school who absolutely loved it. She swore by it as the greatest thing ever. And when I watched it, I enjoyed, you know, I watched maybe the first season, a season and a half or something like that, but I enjoyed it. And when I was going through this, there was something kind of enjoyable about it. And I don't know, it could be gender based that I just don't take as much interest in these kinds of setups, but it doesn't have all the wit of something like a Pride and Prejudice that you get to enjoy. So there's a lot of plot 
and subplot and all dialogue just based on all those ideas about oh who's married to who and who's sleeping with who and are they gonna marry you or are you gonna ask that person who you know it's just there's something about that whole situation i mean i kind of lament the loss of it now nobody cares anymore but there's something about that that is not as interesting as it ought to be every time napoleon showed up i was like wrapped into it i was like oh yes let's talk napoleon stuff but it was just the backdrop you know it was just a <laughs> some stuff in the in the background that would pop up occasionally but i did get more out of it than i thought i would there are likely better victorian novels i'm sure we'll run into them as we go along and more interesting things that happen in those novels and this is number 74 it's it's well into the list but i understand it being on the list you know and i don't begrudge it it's it's placement and obviously on one reading i'm sure there's just so much i would have missed i mean i can't even remember the plot things that happened throughout the book and a lot of the writing as you heard in the quotes a lot of the writing is is good so i'm sure there's a lot to get out of it but yeah that was vanity fair and william makepeace thackeray so now we have broken the jam (laughs) we get to move on there's going to be a flood we're going to be able to race through a lot of these things the next one is the old man in the sea is that what it is by hemingway i think that one is the next one coming up so i'm looking forward to that that one's like 10 pages long so that's gonna be an easy one to dive into and we'll have some what's it called in between i'm not sure yet if i'm going to do discussions of literature because i'm sure there are topics that we could dive into more one thing that i thought about doing was just doing a a kind of a background thing on the author and talking about some discussions of the author so we had a better understanding of why they might have written what they wrote although that kind of annoys me too because i don't care about the identity (laughs) you know i just want to experience the work as the work but we might be well beyond that point in human history to be able to do that and it could be helpful to understand where the author is coming from maybe at least read some analyses of what other people thought about the book who are experts who have really spent a lot of time with these things so we can really get a good idea so i might do a discussion i might not anyway so next one like i said is hemingway and the next non-fiction book is i'm not sure so there you go <laughs> but i hope all's well i'll see you on the next one all right bye <music>